We're looking this morning at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. So if you would turn with me to Romans 12, 17, we'll read the text and then we will we'll get into it. Um, Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much. As we gather today, your people, into your, into your presence, we thank you that we can begin our prayer to you, our conversation with you, by calling you Father. Lord, we just thank you that you are our Father and that our relationship with you is one of sons and daughters. I pray, God, that we would rejoice in that relationship, that we would understand its fullness and its richness. But above all, Lord, I pray, God, that we, Lord, would know for sure that we are your sons and daughters, and that we would not struggle with assurance of salvation. We would not question our salvation. As we look at this text this morning, I pray, God, you would shine your Spirit's light upon this text, and that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand exactly what is being said here today. We pray you would speak to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, at a symposium honoring Dale Moody, the uh, somewhat famous New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall um, recited the old joke that Arminians know that they are saved, but they're afraid they can't keep it. Whereas Calvinists know that they cannot lose their salvation, but they're afraid they don't have it. Now, this is, uh, for most of you in this room, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. There are two schools of thought, two trains of thought when it comes to the most fundamental issue before us, the issue of salvation, whether or not we're going to heaven, whether or not we are right with God. One school of thought says it's all in God's hands. He's sovereign, he's in control, your salvation is totally in his hands. The other school of thought says, God has offered salvation, but it's up to me whether or not I get it. In other words, I have to work hard to keep it, I've got to be right with God, I've got to make sure that I'm right with God. So one school says, yes, God saves us, it's totally in his hands. The other school says, God has offered salvation, but it's up to us to take hold of it and to hang on to it. Now, what's interesting is you take a text, don't flip there, just listen. You take a text like Hebrews chapter 6, which says, let us therefore leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And it says, this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then 
have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance again, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, you take a text like Hebrews chapter 6, which says you can't repent if you fall away from God, and you throw that into, and it doesn't matter whether you're Arminian or Calvinist, it doesn't matter whether you think your salvation hinges on you or whether it's all in God's hands, you throw a text like that into the equation and everything goes to pieces. How do we reconcile these passages? How do we pull this together? Is it possible for a Christian to lose their salvation? Is it possible for us to once be saved, always be saved? Can we trust this into into the Father's hands, or is there something upon us? Now, what's interesting is, from the Calvinist side of the equation, those who argue that salvation is all of God and that we don't contribute anything to it, they also have this other tenet in which they say, your salvation has been predetermined in the secret decree of God from before the foundation of the world. That's great. So how do I know I'm saved? Is it possible to be deceived about my salvation? Uh, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote an autobiography, and he was, uh, you know, an avowed five-point Calvinist. What's interesting is, in his autobiography, he really struggled with knowing whether or not he was going to heaven. He really struggled with knowing whether or not he was saved. And that's a problem. Because it seems like so much of the rest of the Christian life can be stopped or halted, that your growth in your relationship with the Father can be stunted if you can't know with any certainty that you know God the Father. And so I thought we would take a a brief step away from Matthew this morning to look at Romans chapter 8 to look at what this text is saying to us about our relationship with God and how we can know him. But before we do, I want to read you this quote from Paul from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, in which he makes a statement, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Now what Timothy is saying to Paul, what Paul is saying to Timothy is that he knows He's going to heaven. He has assurance. He has confidence. And look at what he says here. First part of it, next slide, for I know whom I have believed. And so the thrust of this text today, the thrust of the message this morning is going to be simply this. A person can know with certainty that they are presently in this moment saved. Paul says, I know whom I have believed. And number two, I am persuaded that God, he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day, the final day. So Paul's statement in 1 Timothy, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 112 is that you can know you are presently saved. He knows he's presently saved. And you can also know that you will be saved in the future. Paul's statement in 2 Timothy provides the paradigm for understanding this text this morning in Romans chapter 8. Your salvation is not in your power. It's in God's power. So let's look at the text. Romans chapter 8, he begins in verse 12. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, we're just going to stop right there, and we're going to see a couple of things. Number one, Paul makes this statement. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, that is, we owe a debt 
not to the flesh. Now, again, we're jumping in the middle of this passage, which I always hate doing, but it's a necessary evil sometimes, just to define terms. Flesh is the sinful nature. He correlates that with the body. You'll notice in verse 13, he says, uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of, look at this, the body, you will live. So, there's this understanding that our flesh is our sinful nature. It's the desire of everything we have in this world apart from God. It's when we chase after the things of this life and our lusts and our temptations drive us and compel us to do things which are clearly sinful. Now, Paul's statement there is brothers. So he's already acknowledging that the Romans who are reading this letter, the Roman church, that they're Christians. He has already stated to them, he's already affirmed to them that he believes they're genuinely saved, that they have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. They have asked Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins based upon what he has done on the cross. They have placed their faith in him. He recognizes that. He calls them brothers. They're Christians just like Paul. So his statement is, brothers, we should not live life as though we owe an obligation to our sinful nature, but we should live life as though we owe an obligation to the Spirit that we now have living in us, to live according to the Spirit. And he makes a statement, if you live according to the flesh, if you embrace that, that sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In verse 13, Paul is saying that the Spirit is what is necessary to kill the old man, the sinful nature. John Owen, a famous Puritan, said it best, I think, when he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The Spirit is the only way that you can kill the old man. He makes a statement, if you live according to the flesh, if you indulge the sinful nature, if you give yourself over to those things, they will ultimately kill you. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will not ultimately die, you will live. Verse 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Where we're headed this morning is towards the truth that if you are a son of God, if you are a child of God, sons and daughters, you will go to heaven. So there's a connection between verse 13 and verse 14. He makes a statement, if by the Spirit, the Spirit is the instrument that you use to kill off the old nature, to kill off the sin nature, you will live. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He makes a statement in verse 14 that if you are led by the Spirit, if the Spirit is leading you in your life, then, going back to verse 13, what that is leading you to do is to kill sin. So verse 13 says, if by the Spirit, now that's, that's the dative case, it's an instrumental, um, let, me, let me try and break this down for you. This past, uh, this past Christmas, we were making goods and baking and doing you know, cookies and things like this in the kitchen. And uh, anytime you're cooking in the kitchen or anytime you're doing thing, anything like that where you're making food, you inevitably find yourself having to use a knife to cut food. Some of you are going to laugh because you know where I'm going with this. Listen, my Greek professor, first year, he used the knife illustration, I used the knife illustration. It's just what I know. A knife is an instrument. It's a tool that you use to achieve a certain thing. Now, you achieve the cutting of the bread or the cutting of the meat or whatever it is that you're cutting with the knife. So it makes the statement here, 
you have to kill the flesh, you have to kill sin by using the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read that statement apart from verse 14, and if you read verse 14 apart from verse 13, you have no idea what's being talked about. I have known many of Christians who look at verse 14 and say, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then they come to the conclusion, if I go to the right school, if if God leads me to the right school, or if I marry the right person, if God leads me to the right wife, well, then that's how I know that I'm a child of God because it turned out well. There were practical, pragmatic benefits. It all worked out good in the end. So that's how you know God is leading you. And they quote this verse. The only problem is that's not even remotely what Paul is getting at. Okay, the context is clear. Verse 14, notice it begins with the word for. It's a logical connection to verse 13. Verse 13 says, by the Spirit, you kill the sin nature. Now, you would think, based on verse 13, that it's up to you to kill the sin nature. And there is a part that you play in it. But you are not the leading person. If you just had verse 13 and not verse 14... You'd think it was all up to you, somehow, by some magical design, to employ the Spirit to kill the sin nature in your life. But verse 14 elaborates on verse 13. Though you do have a part to play in it, the role of the Spirit is to do the leading of that killing of the sin nature. Now notice this. The sin nature is killed by the Spirit, and the role that the Spirit plays, according to verse 14, is that He leads you to do it. All right? Now, practically, what does that look like? In my own life, as I have read and studied the Scriptures and in my own quiet time, my own devotional time, there have been occasions in which the Father has convicted me through the indwelling presence of the Spirit that there are certain things I need to give up. I'm going to give you one example. And my friend Rob Sieb is to be credited with this. Uh, This is a conversation that he and I had, I think, about a year and a half ago regarding obeying the speed limit. Uh, scripture says that if you're a child of God, I'm, I'm not looking to point any fingers at anybody here, all right, but let's just be honest, we've all broken the speed limit, okay? Like, let's just be clear. Scripture says if you're a child of God, you know that all authority derives from the Father, so every king or every government or every, uh, you know, power that exists in your life it's placed there by God. Now, that doesn't mean that those powers always act in accordance with what God once. Sometimes they may set the speed limit entirely too slow for the Father's purposes. Okay? <laughs> however, however, <laughs> you know that they have been given that authority from the Father. So even though you feel like you should be doing 110 and it's a 90 or whatever, Scripture says you should honor, this is from 1 Peter chapter 2, you should honor the king or honor the government. Which means we're surrendering our lives to the Father. We're doing what He wants. Rob Seab asked me this question. I don't remember exactly when. It was about a year and a half ago. He said, if we truly honor the Father and we truly recognize that government authorities are from the Father and we recognize that the government has the right to set the speed limit for the you know, safety of everyone involved, then wouldn't that also mean that we as Christians are obligated to keep the speed limit? Now, That's an easy yes. The problem is he began the conversation with asking me how fast I typically go. Which, so you say, yes, I speed. I routinely go 10 kilometers over. And then he asked the question, well, you know, you work through it logically, so doesn't that mean the speed limit's from God? 
crickets. <laughs> crickets, right? Now, you know, we can lie to ourselves and be like, well, but, you know, whatever. I just make it up as I go, right? But the truth is, uh, Mr. Sieb has a point, a biblical point, an undeniable scriptural point. So I just said, yes, this is true. The problem is, like I said, you've started the conversation with the full admission that you routinely go 10 kilometers over. So if you're going to be honest with the scriptures, you've just confessed to sin, right? Now the Spirit, in that moment, convicted me. Would I not, as a child of God, desire the safety and the well-being of the world around me? Absolutely. Has God not placed certain authorities into my life to help me achieve maximum safety, being a good steward of my vehicle, my life, and the lives of those individuals who are on the road with me? Absolutely. So then, how long was I a Christian before I submitted to the speed limit? Oh, I was a Christian a long time and didn't submit to the speed limit. Does my submitting to the speed limit make me a Christian? No, it doesn't. Does the fact that I have habitually, for, since the time I was driving at the age of 16 up until 32, when I decided I would commit myself to honoring the speed limit, does that whole 16-year period of life that was lived, from driver's license to surrender, was that invalid? Was uh, I not saved? By no means. I was saved. But the Spirit had not brought me by His leadership, and He leads in a number of ways. In this particular instance, He led through my friend Rob. The Spirit of God had not led me. And the truth is, I instinctively knew it was wrong. But the Spirit of God had not convicted me that I really could desire something better for my life, my vehicle, the lives of those on the road. And he hadn't convicted me of that. So to honor the speed limit is good. To break the speed limit is sin. What brought me to the point of honoring the speed limit? It was the Spirit. So there's a sin nature, and I'm using a very basic example here, okay? I want you to know that if you speed, like, I'm not going to think less of you or anything like that. Like, I, I, it's fine. It's not a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal, and I pray God convicts you. Anyway, um, moving on. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make is the sin nature is killed by the Spirit as He works in your life. He's the one that kills it, but He does it under His own leadership. Spirit isn't something you take a hold of, like He's an instrument that you can manipulate and twist to your own advantages. He brings about your growth in righteousness according to His own time and in His own way. The fact that He leads in your life to kill the sin nature, according to verse 14, is evidence that you are a child of God. Now, I want you to see these two verses together. If you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. If you live by the Spirit, you will, if you put the death, the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will live. For all, notice the verse 14 begins with the word for, so there's a logical connection, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So if the Spirit has led you in your life to quit certain behaviors, to give up certain 
private pet sins that you have in order to step more fully into the path of righteousness, that is evidence that you are a child of God. There is no such thing as a Christian who is happy and content knowingly living in sin. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as a Christian, a true Christian, an individual who has truly begun a relationship with God the Father, who knowingly, happily, without any conviction or any angst or inner spiritual turmoil, knowingly walks in sin. And so if an individual comes into my office and he says, I don't know whether or not I'm saved, I don't know whether or not I'm a Christian, one of the first questions I'm going to ask him is, tell me about your walk with God. Tell me about your relationship with God. And I'm not asking him to tell me if he's living in sin. Because here's the catch. We're all of us living in sin to some extent. All of us are continuing to struggle. The nature of my question is not going to be, hey man, confess all your, all your wrongs and let's get this thing squared away right now. The nature of my question when I say, tell me about your walk with God, I'm not looking for him to give me a laundry list of everything he's done wrong today or in the past week. What I'm looking for is for him to tell me about a time in which because of his relationship with the Father, his relationship through the Spirit, he has come to a place where he's given something up for the sake of a greater joy in knowing God as his Father, such as breaking the speed limit. That's what I'm looking for. And if you meet a person who thinks that they're a Christian, and you ask them, what substantive difference has knowing God made in your life? And they scratch their chin, and they say, I can't think of anything. There's been nothing in your life that was altered. No. We have reason to be concerned that perhaps they are not a child of God. The next verse, again, verse 15, begins with the word for. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Adoption is the principle. Now, here's where things get really dicey. Whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, whether you're all the way out on this end of the spectrum, or whether you're all the way out on this other end of the spectrum, regardless of what position you take, both historically, the Calvinist and the Arminian have said the way you have assurance of salvation, the way you know you are going to heaven, is based upon the fact that there is decreasing frequency of sin in your life, that you're growing in spiritual maturity, that you are stepping more and more fully out of your old life and into your new life. And what this has resulted in is that we now engage in, for lack of a better term, spiritual navel-gazing, where we say, okay, like, uh, when, I, when I forsook that particular sin in my life or when I gave up that particular bad habit, like, what was, what was the reason for that? Was that just because I... 
wanted to engage in some other sinful activity? Was I mo- what was my motivation in that? Like, can I really look at this thing and say, okay, I gave this up because I wanted to have the happiness of God in my life? You know, and we start to get into all these questions where we start to pick apart our behaviors and the things we're engaged in, and we start to question the motives. And guess what? It's been pastorally disastrous. It's been pastorally disastrous. From a pastor's perspective, what has resulted in, whether you go to this extreme or whether you go to that extreme, both sides of the equation, people are looking for some assurance that they're really going to heaven based upon what they're doing, based upon their own activity, their own walk in the Christian life. And there are pastors who knowingly engage in the same sort of manipulation, as though salvation is a carrot and hell or damnation is the stick And they can argue with you, you need to engage in this particular behavior, you need to support this particular program in our church, you need to commit yourself to this particular activity that we're doing as a church, and if you don't, well then, I don't know about your walk with God. And it's not from the sake of, has God led you out of something, it's, you know, God's just not leading you into stuff that I want you to be involved in. And it's produced all kinds of Spiritual neurosis. Am I really saved? Paul begins this passage in verse 12 with being a debtor to live according to the Spirit. He talks about sin on the front end, and he talks about glory on the back end. That's the progression. He's moving from sin to glory. You notice again, I've pointed it out to you all along the way, the word for. Look at verse 13, 4. Look at verse 14, 4. Look at verse 15, 4. 16, no 4. But it continues on. The Spirit himself bears witness. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You notice there's a a train track that goes along here. There's a right way to swim downstream, so to speak. You do this because of this. You do this because of this. And you ultimately do this because of the final and ultimate thing, that you're a child of God and you're going to be glorified with Christ someday. Paul's train of thought moves from this activity to this ultimate foundation. And people starting here at the ultimate foundation have said, well, the only way we can know we're here at the ultimate foundation is to go back to the activity. That's backwards. The activity flows out of the foundation. It isn't the foundation flows out of the activity. Because of your relationship with the Father, you engage in these things. If you don't engage in these things... That doesn't necessarily mean you don't have a relationship with the Father. That's critical. The text flows this way, not the other way. And to swim upstream, what you are fundamentally doing is you're saying that your salvation, you're going to heaven, and your knowledge of the fact that you're going to heaven has got to be tied to the things that you are doing. Now listen to me. There is a precedent for looking at your life And saying, are you growing in your walk with God? But growing in your walk with God is not necessarily evidence of whether or not you know Him. Because you can be deceived. You can go to church, you can go to life group, you can read your Bible, you can do all of these things. It's been put like like this. Here's Here's the argument that's been put. Major premise. It's a, it's a logical argument. There's a premise, there's a second step, and then there's a conclusion. Major premise. If salvation is manifested in a person by good works, then they are saved. Minor premise. 
I do good works. Conclusion, therefore, I am saved. Anybody see the problem with that? Jesus isn't mentioned anywhere in there. We get to the next verse, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Next argument for how we can know we are saved. Major premise, if a person experiences some sort of mystical inward confirmation of the Spirit, then they are saved. To the best of my understanding, I experience this mystical inward confirmation of the Spirit. Conclusion, therefore, I am saved. You notice what's missing there? Jesus Christ. Now, what if you don't experience the mystical inward confirmation of the Holy Spirit? Okay, so throw verse 16 out. We'll go back to the beginning verses. I, I don't know that God is really whispering to me that I'm really a child of God, so let's go back to verse 13. Do I put to death the deeds of the body? Okay, work, 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 work. Make sure I'm growing in righteousness. It's a clenched fist, gritted teeth, sort of bare knuckles, I'm going to force myself to be holy. While it is true that knowing God will lead to you walking away from certain sins in your life, that happens as a result of you being a son of God. That happens as a result of you receiving the spirit of adoption Notice what he says in verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You cannot do good works and then say you have a relationship with God as a result of it. In fact, the only way you can do good works, truly righteous works, is if it starts with seeking the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, receiving the Spirit as a result of that, which produces in you a desire for God. Paul uses some really, really poignant terms here. You cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba is from Aramaic. It's a term that would have been used by Jews living in Palestine during the first century. It speaks of the most intimate, closest possible relationship that a child can have with their father. Abba, daddy. That's what the word literally means, daddy. And he couples that with father, pater, Greek word. Daddy, father. Which is a shocking statement a shocking statement to think that we could have such an intimate, close, and personal relationship with God that we don't see him anymore as this holy, righteous, sovereign judge of humanity, but that knowing the forgiveness which is given to us on the cross, the Spirit leads us to a place to where he stirs up our affections and our emotions for God as a father. Out of that flows sonship. Out of sonship flows killing 
sin in your life. But it starts with turning to God. The problem is too many of us are trying to find our assurance of salvation in our sanctification. But assurance of salvation is a part of legitimate saving faith. Assurance should always be grounded in justification, not sanctification. Always. I want you to look at this. We did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, for those of you who are with us on Christmas Eve, I preached from Galatians chapter 4. This is almost parallel to what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 4. Spirit of slavery, to be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We looked at this briefly, not really in depth, at our Christmas Eve service, in which we saw clearly that this is a function of the old covenant. This is a function of the law. The law tells us we are guilty. Have you ever lied? Yes, we've all lied. Have you ever broken the speed limit? Yes, we've all broken the speed limit. Have you ever, uh, you know, dishonored your mother and your father? Yes, we've all done things in our life that we're not proud of. Well, all of that proves to you that you are out of a harmonious relationship with God, that you stand under His judgment, that you stand under His justice. Knowing that, knowing that we are not right with the Father, that brings us to that initial point where we can place our faith in Jesus Christ and be made right with the Father as a result of what Christ does on the cross and not as a result of anything that we do. Which means that when we trust in Jesus Christ, the only legitimate saving faith that there can possibly be is the legitimate saving faith which says it is all on Jesus and none of it is on me. And if you step away from that foundational bedrock principle that it is all of Christ, all on the cross, he is totally in control, and you try to say that, well, my salvation and my assurance of my salvation in some way hinges on what I do, you have just neglected and turned your back on the saving principle that it's all about Jesus. If it's all about Jesus, then it's not about what you do. It cannot be. He makes a statement, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. If you're doing things in your life, reading your Bible, going to church, being involved in life group, whatever, tithing. You can come up with any of the different list of things that we do as Christians. Because you are fearful that if you don't do those things, God is going to zap you. Well, then you're still under the old covenant, friend. And you've missed the understanding of what grace by salvation is. Who wants a child that obeys them? out of fear. Be honest, Dad, Mom. Some of you are like, that works for me. Gets them to do what I want them to do. I know, I'm there. I have two kids of my own. There are days when I say, I just want you to obey. There's frustration. If my child grows up her whole life living in fear of me, that's, that's a horrible relationship. And, and I would be a wicked man if that was my desire. Now, do I think my child should obey me? Absolutely. If she disobeys me, does her disobedience bring upon her pain, heartache, suffering? Yes. When I tell my child, don't run out in the street, I'm not trying to be a wicked, evil, mean dad. I'm trying to prevent her from getting 
plowed over by a truck. So there is a law there that's there for her happiness. Now, at a young stage of development, she can't fully grasp the reality that a speeding truck moves way faster than her tiny two-year-old, you know, less than a foot legs can propel her. She's not going to make it out of the street fast enough to preserve her own life. Now, she doesn't know this because she's only two, but she really would prefer to live life without being smacked by a pickup truck. She would really prefer to live life without having some sort of physical disability or brain damage or any of the other horrors that can come from being hit by a car. But she can't understand that at this age. So for now, we live with fear. When you go out in the street, daddy will discipline you. We do not like discipline. Therefore, we fear the street because we fear daddy. That's where our relationship is at, at a very infant stage. But in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ sent forth, sorry, God the Father sent forth his son, Jesus. So that we would not live in fear anymore, but that we would be granted understanding. So our desire to walk away from sin is not out of a relationship of slavery or bondage or fear. It's because now we understand in Jesus Christ what real happiness looks like. We understand that by honoring God, these are really good things for us. And we desire it. We desire to honor him because he is our father. And Paul makes a statement, it's not a spirit of fear. That's the old covenant. That's what it was like when you were spiritual infants, when you didn't understand the ways of the world. But what we have received is adoption. Some of you are like, well, I don't know, I... I'm adopted. I prefer to be like a natural-born real son. That stigma's out there. I, I've encountered it. As though an adopted child is somehow less of a real daughter or a real son than a natural-born child. I've heard the expression, and Lisa Larkin's smiling at me. I'm sure you can relate. When are you going to have your own? I had my own. I had two of my own. You know, it's a, oh, yeah, yeah, but when are you going to have your own? They are my own. <laughs> my daughters are my own. And I can tell you right now, I, I can't envision, if the Lord does give Shanti and I natural-born children, I can't envision my wife or I ever loving our quote-unquote natural-born children any more or any less than our other children. In Greek society, adoption wasn't common, but it was done for a specific purpose. F.F. Bruce, commenting on the culture of the first century, makes the statement, in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was no whit inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature. And, in fact, the adopted son might well enjoy the father's affections more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. In the first century, when a father was seeking to pass his estate on, he understood that his estate was the result of years of hard effort. He wanted it to be stewarded well. And as he looked at his own children, he might, this is a horrible thought, but it, it happened in the first century, he might look at his own biological, natural-born children and decide that they were not capable, for one reason or another, of managing his estate. And he would adopt a child into his family 
who would. That is exactly what God has in mind with this passage. Look at the next verse. If children, then heirs, to inherit, to receive an inheritance, to receive God's estate, which is what? The universe, everything. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Adopted just as worthy as Christ, the natural born son. Not because of how righteous we are, but because as the natural born son, he gives us his righteousness. How can you know that you're saved? Well, let me ask you this. Can you know whether or not you're married? Imagine a visitor coming to our church and, you know, a family comes in, they visit, and afterwards they get to talking to them, and they say, oh yeah, so you're the pastor, that's good. We, we kind of chat and talk about biological details, what, where do you work, what's your family, and he says to me, so tell me, are you, are you married? Oh, I don't really know. What if that was my response? Not sure. Am I married? Now, if I said that, he would be like, "Uh huh. (laughs) Tell me, what are the other churches that meet in this building again? What times do their services? Is it too late for me to catch the Calvary? You know, am I going to miss the other? They're not sticking around. They think I'm crazy. They would. They think I was crazy. You know. If you have a relationship with a woman, you know it. You see, marriage is a legal understanding. It's a legal expression of a personal relationship. I didn't say to myself, I'm married. Who's my wife? Where is she? I want to see. I don't want to see her. I knew for a fact that I loved Shanti, and I determined that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her, so I proposed to her, and we got married. And, And it's not a matter of, are you married? Well, I'm not too sure. No, I can tell you, August 11th, 2001, 2 p.m., Saturday afternoon, based on the promise of 1 Corinthians 13, officiated by the Reverend Travis Burleson. I probably somewhere, I don't know where, still have the invitation to the thing. I don't remember now exactly what it would have said. It would have said, you know, Mr. and Mrs. uh, Stephen Bosbach invites you to the wedding of their daughter. My in-laws are here with us today. And Mr. and Mrs. Virgil Claycamp, so forth and so on. There's all kinds of evidence that I can look back and see, yeah, that's pretty good. See, there it is. I, can, I could probably have a, li- a wedding license somewhere as well that says the same thing. But the reality is, I don't wake up one morning and say, am I really married? No, because there's a woman in my life that I love. In the same way, all of us in this room, when we ask ourselves, am I really saved? That seems like the wrong question. It's kind of like asking yourself, am I really married? Well, the purpose of marriage is for the sake of a relationship, and salvation is also for the sake of a relationship. And so rather than asking yourself, am I really saved, you know what the best question to ask yourself is? Am I loving God with all that I am? And how could I love him better and enjoy him more deeply and have a more rich and rewarded experience in the Father's love. 
Everything about Romans chapter 8. I wish we had more time to really pick it apart. Everything about it. You notice he starts in verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. He starts off with the fact that there's no condemnation. He works his way down to the fact that you're supposed to be killing sin in your life. Then he transitions from that into glory. And at the end of the passage, he says, in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The whole passage is saying you cannot lose your salvation and nowhere in the whole text is he ever saying you need to be sure you're killing sin in your life in order to make sure you're going to heaven. The purpose in it all is to focus you right here in this middle chunk on God as your Father, Jesus Christ as your Savior. Calling upon Him through the Spirit. Abba, Father. A New Year's resolution for you. Trust in Jesus and love Him more and more every day. And if you are ever tempted to wonder about whether or not you're really saved, that's kind of like asking whether or not you're really married. Why don't you just love God the Father and pursue Him more and more and more? Let's bow for a word of prayer.